Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. This episode marks a proud milestone for our team. It's our 100th episode. I would like to take a moment to say we're so grateful for our generous sponsor, Conway Shield, for supporting this show since its inception. We've been very fortunate to work with the professionals at Gotham Production Studios over the years. And of course, we deeply appreciate our incredible guests who have trusted us to tell their stories and showcase their lifelong work. To include our guest in this episode, Dr. Jonathan Fader, affectionately known as Fader to his colleagues and those in the LUF network. Fader was featured in episode two of this podcast, but was in fact my first recorded interview for this show. So we thought it would be fitting to bring him back for the 100th episode. In our last conversation, we explored mental skills, risk aversion, and process over outcomes. In this conversation, I would like to build on those themes and also unpack some of the things that Dr. Fader has learned about performance in the past four years, particularly working with the Leadership Under Fire team. Fader, welcome back to the show. Listen, it's a two-time, I feel lucky I have a sequel. How many guests get a sequel on the show? I feel privileged. You should, you should. It was really important to us to have you back on the 100th episode of this show. I think in part because you often remind us that the journey is the reward, but there is so much value in taking the time to celebrate our wins. And this is a big win for us. It's a tremendous accomplishment to have 100 episodes and you being the first interview, it just, we're really threading the needle here. So I'm grateful that you had the time to do this today. You know what? I think you cannot overstate that. Um, to have a hundred episodes of any podcast, I mean, that in podcast time, that's like the millionth episode. Um, many podcasts don't survive past a few shows. I mean, I think it shows two things, Patty. One, it, it just shows your commitment and 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 leadership under fire's commitment, but it shows the level of interest uh, and the and the community that's out there that really benefits from um, you know learning from people who've contributed or are around uh, the fire service and, and first responding. Agreed and well said, and thank you for acknowledging the work that goes into it. Um, well, actually, I'll, can I just say one other thing, actually? Is that, uh, you know, the other thing I was just gonna say, Patty, is that I, I think that you know, my experience is working with the, the humility and, and duty of, of firefighters and, and first responders is that um, sometimes it's confusing about when people should acknowledge their accomplishments. And I think you make a very good point there that, you know, it's, it, it is really important um, and difficult sometimes for people who are so humble and so committed uh, to what they do to take a minute to realize what they're doing well. And, and, that, and as we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll talk about today, is part of the recipe of high performance. Yes, I feel like we're diving right into it. And I was planning on kind of easing into this conversation today by talking about your technique of putting high performers on the spot and having them rap in front of an audience. 
So just to kind of take a lighthearted approach to this great conversation we're about to have, can you share an example with our listeners and tell us why you encourage putting them on the spot to freestyle rap? Patty, as you know, I'm, this is something I started to develop uh, when I was working in Major League Baseball and in the NFL, where I found, you know, here I am working with the toughest people mm -hmm. um, in the world, like really already mentally tough and physically strong people. And I, I needed to help them to talk about um, what uncomfortability looked like. And so I started to think about the things that people who come from that background are uncomfortable doing. And, and one of the things that all humans are uncomfortable doing is performing and performing out of their comfort zone. Um, athletes are comfortable uh, performing, doing fit, feats of physical greatness, but they're often not comfortable uh, in the realm of perform performing arts. And so I started to bring around uh, this uh, bingo jar with, people, with a bunch of numbers in there, and I would call guys out on stage with me to freestyle rap battle. And you know, the, the point of this was not just to to razz them or haze them. It, it really was about helping people to talk about the universal conundrum or universal obstacle in high performance, which is, you know, we all are worried about the judgment and evaluation of others. And we fear that often more than we fear physical harm. You know, as you know, some of the toughest firefighters in New York City uh, would rather be tackled by, you know, a defensive end with no pads on than come up on, on stage and freestyle rap. So it was an exercise. Um, and, and actually, people realized through that, that exercise that, you know what, I'm going to survive. I'm going to survive this. I will survive being out of my comfort zone. And in, in order to, to achieve amazing feats of high performance, uh, everybody says we have to be uncomfortable, you know, um, we have to be get comfortable with our uncomfortability, but this is a practice about how to do that. I love it. I think that's a great thing to do with people. And you keep using the word toughest. So when we first met several years ago, we talked a lot about mental toughness as the FDNY Mental Performance Initiative rolled out and the team was looking for buy-in from members of the department. I just want to pause real quick and say that that was a respect thing at the time because we were respecting the culture and the audience that we were speaking to, I think. Um, but I've come to realize that you favor the notion of mental agility over mental toughness. So can you explain what the distinction is between the two? Yeah, you know, in my view, the things that we're trying to get better at are not enemies. There's an analogy that sometimes gets used in, in this work of quicksand. The things that we, that we are battling in terms of our own concentration, focus, confidence, it's kind of like quicksand. If we fight the problem, we sink deeper into it. And so the earlier notions of what it meant to be mentally tough meant kind of ignoring or putting your focus away from things that stressed you out. Turns out that the science on that says that's exactly what you don't want to do. You don't want to just stuff things, put them away. There's a time to do that, right? There's a time to kind of not pay attention to them when you're, when you're actually engaged in high performance, right? You're not going to think about something that's on your, that's bothering you when you're on the playing field or in a fire ground. But as far as kind of working on mental preparation, you know, it's really more about mental flexibility, the ability to not feel your best, but still find strategies and techniques to perform well anyway. You know, one of the greatest sports psychologists of all time, Ken Revisa, 
had a quote uh, that he used to say. He was he was a, a guy I looked up to a lot in the field, and he was he was a lot of people credit him with breaking the Cubs curse, um, as he was a sports psychologist for the Cubs who worked for many teams. And he used to have a phrase that he would say, which I really liked, which I'm not sure I can say in this podcast, but I'm going to go for it anyway. We'll see what happens. Is are, are you would say to athletes, these are professional athletes, right? These are, I'm talking about MLB baseball, you know, these are baseball players at, at the highest level of the game pitchers. And, and when they would, you know, be mad because they weren't up to what they knew they were capable of, he would say to them, are you so shitty that you have to feel good to play great? Are you so shitty that you have to feel good to play great? And so, you know what that, I think that is really to me what mental agility or mental flexibility is about. It's the ability to, to, to no matter what the circumstances are, internally, meaning your feelings, your argument with a spouse or partner, your, whatever it is, um, your, your worry about what someone else thinks, you know, regardless of the internal or external situations, you're able to perform close to or at your best. And that requires more flexibility than it does in my mind strength. I feel like we could spend an entire episode talking about this one topic alone and really being able to identify the time and the place for that self-awareness, right? Like when to unpack and when to press pause. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, but I'll just say really quickly that, that yeah. you know, Jason, Jason Bresler has a, a model for this, which I think is very compact and really great, which is there are kind of three phases to, to, to uh, in, in firefighting, but in anything, type performance, preparation, execution, and reflection. Mm-hmm. And I think where a lot of problems ensue is when we're doing the wrong thing for the wrong, phrase, wrong phase. Mm-hmm. In other words, to your point, you know, if you're executing, you have to be executing. And where things go wrong is when we're really criticizing ourselves. Wow, we're supposed to be executing. And that's a lot what performance psychology is about, you know, is is learning to uh, acknowledge that you're doing that and, and refocus on what's important. Or as they say in the Olympics, you know, focusing on the right thing at the right time every time. Mm-hmm. Right. But with your background as a clinical psychologist, are there any times where you kind of see a red flag when you're working with someone and say, okay, this is a mental health issue you need to address, you know, and kind of take time with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, typically, you know, most of the athletes and high performers I've known, firefighters, it's usually not. Right. I mean, there are there are some situations where it, there is a clinical issue, and and the, what you look for there is does do you or does the person experience what we would call significant impairment or distress in their lives, and that's not typically what you you see. You typically, don't see significant impairment or distress. If you see significant impairment or distress, that's a different issue. That's not what we're talking about. That's as you're saying, a clinical psychological issue. That's a mental health issue. But you know. To me, it's kind of like your diet, right? Like, yes, there are some people who have terrible diets, but all of us have slightly terrible diets, right? Like, you know, there's no one out there, maybe you, Patty, but there's no one out there that's like really eating super clean. You know what I mean? Everybody's eating, you know, and so there's a continuum. Sometimes people think it's like mental health and then it's like not anymore. But no, I mean, you know, people who I feel that are have long lasting careers in any high performance zone, have really made an effort to focus on their mental health, not not because it's like there's something wrong with them, but because they know that sleeping, that that eating right, that meditating and using mindfulness, that having great relationships, 
um, that kind of th taking care of their thought process, um, you know, all those things day to day are going to add up, right? So not waiting till there's significant impairment or distress. Well, you don't have to go, you don't have to be sick to get better, as we say, in this, you know, field. I appreciate all of that because I feel like the market is saturated with more things related to mental toughness and people are reaching for what I would call surface level wins and neglecting a lot of these other layers. So that was important to me to flesh out. No, I really, I totally agree with you. And I, and I think that, um, you know, I, what I always say to athletes is like, this is more like yoga than it is magic tricks, right? People think, oh, sports psychology, I'm gonna learn a trick. And yeah, I mean, there are some techniques, right? And strategies. But this is more like a daily, this is just like weightlifting, man. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, you don't go to the gym and do 10 curls and then say, I'm done, right? Like you do it for your whole life. And the same thing is true of mental conditioning or mental performance. It's something you work on every day. It's something I work on every day. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I've seen the FDNY football team. I, I'm not getting out on the field anymore. I'll, I'll, I'll never walk away. But I can say that, you know, in my own ways of performing, right? In being a speaker um, and actually in just, you know, as you know, for me, it's, you know, this is, this encompasses all of life and in, in being a partner and being a husband and being a father. I mean, these are all ways in which we're working every day um, to build focus and motivation and confidence. Excellent. So as I was preparing for this interview, Jason Bresler, of course, was helping me and he asked if you wouldn't mind exploring the story about you conveying your distinction between uh, mental agility and mental toughness to newly promoted FDNY lieutenants only to contradict yourself on national TV a few nights later. I'm not familiar with this story. Are you comfortable sharing it? <laughs> oh, okay. I, I got to think, I got to find a way to repay this wonderful gift to Jason. We're gonna have to figure this out. You know, you got, next time he comes on the show, I'm going to, I'm going to send you a question for, for him. Um, you know, I, I, I'm totally comfortable with it. And the reason I'm comfortable with it is because, you know, I think it's really, uh, it illustrates what we were talking about. So we, we go to the, I can't remember the class, but it's the, it's the class of promoting the lieutenants, the newly minted lieutenants. Flips. I think it's flips, right? Yeah. Yeah. Flip. And so at FDNY in the fire department, New York city, and I was giving them a talk and, and I was explaining, you know, how I sort of move away from mental toughness. Um, as a concept, because to me, that that means that, you know, you're going to get um, really inflexible, right? And you're going to, it has a connotation of that, uh, you're, you're not going to adapt. And one of the exercises I do with people, and it's, it's really, I think, useful for people listening here is to make, come up with your own definition of what, what you really mean when you say mental toughness. Some of the best definitions I've ever heard are when I've done this exercise with football players. One, one NFL player said mental toughness is creating an excellent filter for yourself, which I really love. Um, but anyway, so I did this exercise and I was explaining the difference. And, you know, one of one of the, you know, veteran really kind of minted guys in the group, he, he gave me a hard time about it. And I was really going back and back, repartee with him about it. And about you know you know mental toughness and why I think mental flexibility and mental strength are more of an issue of, of, and you know we went back and forth and I made a case I was like on a soapbox really you know expressing my my feelings about it and anyways later that same night I had the honor of going uh, to uh, be on on TV to cover as a sports psychologist 
the Wallenda family. Now, the Wallenda family, Wallenda family are a tightrope walking family. They they walk across tight ropes, high wires, and they were walking across Times Square. The brother and sister, uh, the two Wallenda uh, family members, were going to cross. They were going to walk across, meet in the middle of Times Square, and then walk around each other on the same aim one high wire and then continue in the opposite directions. So I was brought there to comment on it. And when I got there, you know, I mean, I've never, I've been on TV, but I've never been on kind of live TV in the middle of like, you know, 100,000 people down square screaming. And I have to say, I was feeling my heart beating pretty fast, you know, and, and this is what we call uh, nervous system arousal, right? It's, you have sort of a curve of arousal. And I was at the top of the curve. I was feeling my heart beat. I was autonomic nervous system arousal. I was feeling full on fight or flight right in that moment. And I was using all the techniques, but I definitely was, you know, pretty amped. And I'm there talking to, to Strahan, Strahan and, and we're talking about this situation. And, and he's like, what do you think of this? And I just go off and I'm just saying all these ideas. And then one of the things I said in the middle of this heated moment was, and you know, it just shows all of their mental toughness. And the minute the words came out of my mouth, I just felt the entire, everybody I knew in the FDNY, I felt the amount of needling I was going to get. And sure enough, as soon as I walked off the, uh, the, the, the balcony we were on, my phone just lit up, getting razzed by every firefighter that ever, ever worked for the city of New York. Um, but you know what it shows, the story was hilarious because, you know, it shows how I contradicted myself. But in contradicting myself, what I was really showing is how, you know, in high performance states, we don't really have access to a lot of ourselves sometime. And that my level of activation wasn't really at the right place for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so the analogy here would be like, you know, the, the really hairiest, most sideways fire that you've ever been to as a firefighter that you've never been to. That was my version of that, right? I'd never been in that kind of novel uncertain domain. And so I didn't have access to, you know, higher level thinking. And so it was, it was, it's, it's a joke, but it's also a cautionary tale about, you know, what happens if we're not mentally prepared for, or, or not mentally flexible uh, enough for, for the situation that we're, that we're in. I'm so grateful that you were willing to share that story. And this is the perfect opportunity to just confirm that in September, we changed the name of the podcast from Optimizing Human Performance Podcast to Humanizing the Narrative Podcast. And although you maybe never explicitly used that language, your philosophy and the way that you present your work has absolutely influenced the Leadership Under Fire team and the way that we now approach our endeavor and obviously, you know, humanizing the narrative is extremely important to us, so much so that we've taken on that mantra. So that's an excellent story to prove that point. Well, I mean, I, I really, I love the refocusing on humanizing things. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that's one of the greatest things about the whole Leadership Under Fire initiative is really the, the understanding that this actually really isn't even about psychology. It's about humanity. Um, it's about, you know, anthropology. It's about what we are as humans. And I think first responders and people in the military and athletes are given short shrift. We're, we're, we expect people from those domains not to be human. We expect them to be 
not have the same needs. And, and in that, there, it's not even about, to me, acknowledging what their needs are. It's about that people can't perform at their best if those needs are not acknowledged. Totally. So I understand you were uncomfortable in Times Square with the cameras on and all the people around you and having to provide commentary, but you are an accomplished author. And since our last conversation, you authored a second book, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. First, what is motivational interviewing? Motivational interviewing is a really powerful way of interacting with another person. And it has its roots actually in behavioral science and in healthcare and in addictions. Mm -hmm. In many situations, if you think about it, we all have family members that do things that we disagree with or don't understand. They maybe drink too much. They might um, eat in a way that's not helpful. They may gamble. They may get into fights. We all have people in our family like that. There's not one person who's listening here who doesn't, if they're not struggling with those issues themselves, they have a family member who has something like that. What we typically do is we tell that person how, why, and when they should change. Um, and sometimes we do it nicely, but we do it. And what we find is that that's not that effective. So motivational interviewing is a way to help to talk to people about changing their behavior that will allow them to take ownership of that on their own. And it became so successful in really difficult situations like addictions and healthcare that it started to move into other verticals and other areas like sports, where the way we communicate with people dictates what they might choose to do. Motivation is a really tricky part of high performance. And the technique of motivational interviewing is about how do you uh, communicate in a really effective way to help people, A, feel understood, and B, to articulate or say for themselves why and how they are going to change for the betterment of the particular situation. That sounds super technical. And I just want to acknowledge, or perhaps you can expand on, and I, I know who our audience is, and I don't want to sound too woo-woo when I say the healing journey is not linear, right? Mm -hmm. So how does motivational interviewing help in that sense? Or what should the expectation be? Well, I think that, you know, motivational interviewing is really, let's, let's go full woo-woo here. You know, motivational interviewing is, is developed by these two psychologists, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick. It's, it's been around for about 40 years. Uh, there's, you know, thousands of studies that have shown that it's effective. And Bill Miller, you know, I wrote this book that I wrote uh, with, with one of the co-founders, Steve Rolnick. Uh, Bill Miller, the other co-creator co of motivational interviewing, calls motivational interviewing sometimes love with a goal. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? It means that typically when we're talking to another person, we err in one of two ways. We only focus on care and love for them, or we focus on what we wanna accomplish. And we don't combine those two ingredients enough. So just, just think about it. You know, Any conversation we have, we're either erring more to the side of saying to someone, this is what you need to do, or this is what I'm trying to accomplish with you as a person, right? Whatever that is. It could be where you wanna eat dinner tonight, or it could be instructing a young probie or a firefighter about, how to change something that they're doing technically, or we're just understanding and showing empathy and love for them. Like we're just 
listening and being kind. And that motivational interviewing is a technical way, as you said, to combine both of those things for whatever the purpose is, to help someone heal, to change how they operate on the job, to improve your relationship with them, to calm someone down, you know, that those two ingredients we think are necessary. You can't get anywhere without understanding and empathy, but you also don't get anywhere with only understanding and empathy. That's great. And when I think back to one of the last big fun nights I had before the pandemic outbreak, it was actually at the book launch at the end of 2019. That was one of the last big events that it I was, right? enjoyed. We, snuck, we so snuck that one in. We snuck oh, it in right before. What a different life <laughs> it seems totally. like. Um, before I move forward, I do highly recommend your first book that you wrote, Life as Sport. It's actually right there on my bookshelf behind me. So listeners, be sure to pick up both books. As I mentioned earlier, in addition to working as a sports psychologist, you also manage a clinical psychology practice. And when we first spoke in 2018 for this podcast, you told me that you also see yourself as an anthropologist who seeks to find what connects people. So obviously it feels like our world has changed considerably in the past few years due to the pandemic. As somebody who works with a multitude of different people from many different walks of life, in your view, is there a favorable social change brought about by the pandemic that you think is helping more people to enjoy life while being the best version of themselves? So the, the optimistic view of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, um, one of my favorite quotes is an Einstein quote, there are only two ways to look at life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is though everything is a miracle. And to me, everything's a miracle. And what I mean by that specifically, you know, I think Patty for, with regard to the uh, pandemic is that the, the pandemic has really forced everybody. It, it, it's, it, it made people reminded us all that this is, this is a one-time game we're playing. We don't have three lives as we come to think sometimes like, oh, I'll just do it again or I'll do it later. There is no do it later. Um, and I think that the pandemic really forced people to examine that, that do it, the do it later. I, I think that, that it, it revealed two things. One, that a lot of people are actually isolated in their own lives. Um, and so, and, and I think about this with regard to, to, I think this is a Mike Tyson quote, I'm not sure, but it's, he's talking about fear. And he was saying like, fear is like, fire. It can help keep you warm and cook your food or it can burn your whole house down. Um, and I think that all of these things that we use in life are similar. So with regard to the pandemic, for example, social media, Zoom, you and I are using Zoom to create a podcast that's going to touch a lot of people and I think motivate and stimulate thought and, and perhaps work to increase the reach of some of the ideas of leadership under fire. But, you know, some people don't use it that way. And it's the same thing with social media. I think it's really about, you know, how you use the tools that that connect you. The same thing is true of personal relationships. You know, in I found that a lot of my friends made a choice. I'm going to deepen my relationships with the people around me. Um, and they did. Um, and I think that's that's a, a choice you can make and you can make it every day. You don't have to. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're still kind of in the endemic, right? This is going to go on. In, it's a long tail. Hopefully it stays this way. And continues to fade out, but we're still there. It's not exactly life as it was. And so 
the question I always have for myself is like, what am I doing every day to really, if, if my view is that, that life is a miracle, what am I doing to, to manifest that? And it starts now. Like everybody, some people listening to this are saying to themselves, shoot, I didn't do enough of that during the pandemic. But, you know, as I say to people, the clients and the people I coached, today is tomorrow's yesterday. Um, you know, it's like, this is the, uh, this is the time to do it. I have this, this, on, this, is, this quote from the Dalai Lama on my desk all the time, which I read to myself. There are only two days in the year in which nothing could be done. One is called yesterday and the other is called tomorrow. So today is the right day to love, believe, and do, and mostly live. And so I think the pandemic was something that, that made that quote or that idea very real to a lot of people. And if it's not real yet to you, well, it could be real right now. <laughs> Alternatively, in your view, is there a change or effect of the pandemic that has been detrimental for society? I think that, you know, it's, it, it, the pandemic is kind of like, sort of, I would say like alcohol, I think like alcohol is an expectancy drug. It brings out what you expect to happen. And there's studies that have proved this to be the case. So in other words, it brings out more of what you think is there. So I think there is an aspect where if people are already trended towards isolation, the pandemic pushed them a little bit more towards isolation, right? I think that's like what it did a little bit. And I also just think, there's an element in which it created a little bit of destabilization in terms of just norms. Um, I think people uh, struggled more with, we all struggle with, you know, interpersonal things, but I think I, I've noticed a little bit more tension between people. And on the other hand, I've noticed a lot more kindness towards people. So I think, again, it pushed, it pushed people a little bit more towards the extremes is what I feel like uh, happened. Obviously, there's a great debate over working in person or in office versus working from home, and um, in particular in urban places like Manhattan. So you brought up isolation. As someone who helps people to perform optimally and optimize interpersonal relationships, what are your thoughts on this debate? And is there a balance to be had between in-person versus remote? I don't know. Um, I'm not really sure yet. Uh, and I say because I don't think there's been enough like there's enough science behind this yet to really they, I don't think we've done a lot of studying of this yet. What I can say is that I think that that there's no there's no replacement for in-person uh, interpersonal contact and, and especially when it comes to teams working together for a common purpose. I think that that is really an important component. And I think it's really hard to get that on an exclusively virtual or remote basis. Mm -hmm. I think it can be done, but I think you have to pay much more attention. And this is some of the work I've done with groups and teams and, and, and companies around this is what do you do to create psychological safety and closeness if you can't or are not going to be in person? You know, we're, we're, we're humans. We're adaptable. I mean, this is why we run this planet to, you know, to its detriment in some ways. But this is how we, this is why we became a dominant species is because we adapt. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that the, the biggest part of that adaptability is togetherness and connectivity. So um, to be able to collaborate, I, I do think that an, a component of in-person is necessary. A lot of what I do, I can do remotely, but I, you know, I choose to go in and be with our, our team 
um, at Uniscore practice because A, I miss that. And B, I just think it's important part of having things run efficiently in the long term and, and getting to where you want to go goal-wise is to be connected. That said, I think that a lot can be done um, remotely. And I, and I also think that there's a benefit to this, and I've experienced this too, where you know it's brought us back a little bit more towards the kind of family structure for some people that they had before. I certainly have had more family dinners uh, than I have had before because, well, you know, I'm around more. Well, speaking of your family, in 2018, when we spoke for the podcast, I asked you who you attribute your passion and interest in your work to, and you told me your mom. And although she was not a psychologist, you shared that she had a profound impact on your love for working with people to help them better themselves. And I'm sorry to say to our listeners that your mom passed away in 2020, and I'm very sorry for your loss. I want to mention that this happened in the fall of 2020, prior to the rollout of a COVID vaccine. So do you mind sharing how you navigated the disruption to traditional funeral and grieving processes? Because that, that's a very hard time to be alone and away from people. Well, I thank you for bringing that up because, you know, I mean, I do a lot of interviews and we, I don't get to discuss this much. Um, and I and I also really appreciate you bringing up because one of my mom's explicit wishes was to be remembered. Um, and so I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about how to remember her and, and making her memory uh, vivid and real. You know, I, I think that one of the ways that I, my mom was one of my best friends um, and super close to her. We meditated um, together throughout the whole pandemic, like every night. And um, I mean, I think that the way I think about it, Patty, is everything is a choice about how you interpret things, you know? And to me, what we chose to do during the pandemic is we had like a very big, this was like deep in the, this was, you know, November of 2020. So it was still, you know, pre-vaccine. It was, it was pretty crazy time. So we did like a beautiful online thing. And it was amazing that, you know, again, to, your, to the point of how you interpret things, the crazy and amazing thing about it is like, if we had a in-person thing, I don't know, maybe 50 people would have come, but there was hundreds of people. I mean, a couple hundred people came to this. Um, you know, I, I, I think that strangely, my mom gave me so many gifts, but the way in which she died and the experiences I got to have with her around death really helped me. It was, it was a parting gift. She gave me so many gifts, but her death in, in a way was also a gift in the sense of how she, even in that, in that sadness and that bereft, terrible period, she still taught me things um, about what, you know, what it means to have dignity and humor and, spirituality in in really harrowing moments i know there's so much we could say or that you could say but is there anything you want to share about her legacy i think that you know i'll i'll just say share that my mom was someone who really taught me that there's a deep power in gratitude um and you know as people know who know me i have, I have a I, I have so many daily routines that I do to bring out like what I feel like is a great life. And one of the things I do with my, my daughters is that we, we say at night we're grateful for, and uh, that came from her. And, and, and I think that we really underestimate the power of that. It's different from prayer. I also pray, 
but it's different from prayer because you're thinking about it in a different way. And, and I think, you know, that practice is very insulating to the stress that we all experience in life. And so I'm grateful for, for her blazing the path there and teaching us about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing her with us. And you've been sharing her ever since I met you. You've always had great stories about her. So thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm happy that, that you asked. So as I mentioned earlier, human performance optimization has gained a lot of momentum in recent years. And it seems that everywhere we turn, there's a practice and a resource, a strategy or a hack that promises improved performance on, or longevity. So is there a practice that has gained notoriety in recent years that you actually put stock in? I mean, I think that there's so many, there's so many evolutions. And I think we're just, I think we're just understanding the physiology of the human world, like understanding what biofeedback is, understanding what neurofeedback is, understanding the vagus nerve. I think there is a lot in that. I mean, I think the basics of what, what I would say we've learned in the past 10 years are that the number one enhancing drug for life and performance is called sleep. And that the more that you can pay attention to that. And by the way, I, you know, the way I, I think that it's important to pay attention to sleep is not necessarily by wearing a whoop and, you know, or wearing an aura ring. I think those are important, but it's really just saying, we all know what affects those things. And if you're doing the things that are going to positively affect those things, that's great. That's good enough. Um, and I think the other thing that, that there's just more and more science accumulating about is the power of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation and, and making it accessible that people are realizing I don't have to go to Tibet and hang out with the Dalai Lama and, you know, become a monk to do this. I mean, that's amazing if you can do that, but that's not what most people can or want to do. You can find your own way in 10 minutes to listen to an app, close your eyes, focus on your breath, do it in a tactical way. You know, there's so many different options there that I think people are realizing like, oh, wow, this is really doable. And there's, there's enough of a, like a movement around this that people are realizing, oh, okay, so many people are doing this. This isn't scary. This goes back to our original point. People are scared of something new. And so I think there's, I've, I've noticed as I've talked to people, it used to be when I started talking about this to a bunch of firefighters, I would get that funny look, you know, the look that you, you get where you're like, okay, this is, um, talk about woo woo. It's beyond, whatever the thing beyond woo woo is. But now, I, I, you know, people, when I, when I ask people to raise their hands, we just did a training at FDNY. And I think like, you know, a quarter of the people there were already doing something around mindfulness. So, it's a it's a it's a very big kind of worldview shift for the positive, I would say. That's awesome. Is there anything that has gained notoriety that you are skeptical about? Nothing comes to mind right now. Okay. Have you changed your mind or modified your position on a practice or resource or strategy that's gained headlines over recent years? I mean, one of the things that that is now interesting. And I think we've just begun to realize that is um, this process of called TMS, transmagnetic stimulation, transmagnetic cranial stimulation. That's like a new uh, thing. It's mostly for treatment of depression, but now there's uh, indications that it could be effective for other things. There are some people I hear that are doing that uh, for high performance. So I'm interested in that as it develops um, and to see what the data looks like for you know high performance uh, situations. So I think we're just, you know, we're, we're such at the baby, stages of understanding 
<laughs> how the brain works. I and mean, we're so, it's just so amazing how little we know about things. And I think that, you know, I was, I was talking to firefighters around this about the development of the helmet and how we're in many places, we're still wearing helmets that are just like so archaic, right? Like so old and that we should be. So I think, you know, we, we like to hang on to things that we know. And we're very suspect of people or things that we don't understand. And so I think for me, it's more just, you know, being open to those things. And also it's kind of like the analogy of a love of the goal. It's like being open and also being critically rigorous, both, right? Being open to things, but also asking yourself, okay, well, what's the evidence that these things do or don't work? Excellent. And you touched on it earlier but do you want to expand more on your thoughts or observations about the FDNY MPI or leadership under fire endeavor? Like where do you see things going in the next five to 10 years? Because it's come quite a long way over the past several years. For me, MPI, the Medical Performance Initiative at the FDNY, um, there are two levels to it. There's the, there's the actual work, um, which I believe will save lives as i say to firefighters all the time you know you're in a hairy fire do you want who would you prefer assuming equal skill would you prefer someone that had training on mental flexibility and focus and attention um or someone who wasn't and without 201 every firefighter is like no no i want the person that's been trained in that so people are realizing oh right like this is going to save lives um and what it's also done within the FDNY is it's shifted the culture uh, on, on understanding what, to our point before, I think more people understand the idea of mental flexibility. Um, and I think that'll have ramifications for the firefighters, but also their families and their, their performance and also their mental health, although that's not the focus, right? We're not focused on that, but it will resound through and help them in their day-to-day -day life. So that's one level. But I think, Patty, the second level is... FDNY is, if not the most, then, then one of the most heralded fire departments in the world. And, you know, the fact that there's been such success in implementing a program like this means that it will spread. And it not only will spread to firefighters, it'll spread to other places and people that need it. Because my belief is it's not just firefighters and wide receivers and quarterbacks and pitchers um, and Navy SEALs who need this. It's everyone. It's everyone who who faces stress in their day-to-day -day life, right? And uh, it just so happens that these folks are in mission-critical, life-saving jobs, but everybody needs, everybody needs more mental flexibility. And so if these leaders and bravest, literally and figuratively, the bravest are doing it, uh, it's going to be a tone setting and an example setting for the rest of us. Yeah, this is a very exciting time, and I am actually just grateful to be a witness to it. And the fact that sometimes I get to participate is also pretty amazing. Oh, you've been there since the beginning. <laughs> you've been there. You've been there since so you were documenting, and you know this is just one step of all of the amazing chronicling uh, you've doing. And uh, I think you know everybody has a role in this, and and you know you've been such an amazing chronicler and organizer and inspirer of ideas in this whole process. And um, it's really, it's such a, it's amazing to see how it's grown and, and what a big part of it 
you've been with this podcast, but with all of your work with Leadership Under Fire and the FDNY since the very beginning. Thank you. I think there's a lot of important aspects to creating a historical record. And I'm shifting gears a little bit here. I, I wanted to wrap up by discussing game film and how that can be used in constructive ways to enhance performance. So having worked with professional athletes, what is the value in developing a formal practice or routine using film? And what are some of the psychological challenges that you've helped top athletes navigate by going back to film and using it for performance? My view is that the best way to learn actually is from yourself. That, you know, the best way to learn is by observing yourself with a guide. That's what a true coach, I think, should be. All right. A, a true coach is someone who brings the best out of the player. Right. And because, you know, I, let's say I'm coaching someone else who's a sports psychologist. I have a lot to teach them, but I don't know what's going on inside of them. I don't know what jewels are buried there or what obstacles are there. So game film works into that because it's so much more effective to be able to show the film to someone and say, hey, can you walk me through this? Then to say, you see what you did there? I would do this. And so, you know, game film is great. And I think, you know, there is gonna be, I think, a, a rise in that in, in, in firefighting and first responding. And the other thing is that, you know, you, you are changing the culture. Football has an amazing culture around this because every freaking week people put up the film and everybody looks at it together, right? And so it creates this, this constant, incessant, continuous improvement culture that doesn't exist in a lot of other sports, right? And that, that's a kind of culture, you know, again, what kind of firefighter would you want to, to come rescue you? Would you want the one that's part of a culture that's constantly watching together this film and talking about it and thinking about ways of improving? I know if I was in a terrible situation with my family, I'd want the fire department that was really constantly reviewing, not just saying, because what, what almost always happens, as you know, is it's like, if it goes well, people are like, okay, great, we did it. And if it goes terribly, there's like reports upon reports. That's important. But I think what's really important, and, and this isn't true of every kind of first responding setting and, and in a lot of other you know, settings as well, um, even in business settings, but it's amazingly effective. Look, a, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. It's amazingly effective to look at things together with a guide and have the guide skillfully walk the performer through it and, and have the performer think through things. Because you also remember things that your mind pushed out of awareness because if you were like me and in front of Times Square, you were over the arousal curve and you know you don't you don't remember things in the right way, but the film will help you to see what really happened. Yeah. And I want to remind listeners that we discussed a lot about process versus outcome in our previous episode. So please go back, listen to episode number two. And also want to mention that the Leadership Under Fire team is working on a tactical film room. So more to come on that in the future. Hopefully we can have you back again to talk about the integration. Oh, I want in. I want in for episode 300. I want in for 300. <laughs> I think every hundred, I mean, you know, I'm going to just work my way in here, you know? I'm in. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Again, so appreciate you, the work that you do. Thank you for sharing it with all of us. I, listen, as you well know, I've had the privilege of working on the world stage of football and baseball, but I, I realize that the athletes we're talking about here that are listening, uh, the firefighters and the first responders that are listening, um, that you know the stakes are, are much higher and um, the playing field is of most importance. And so for that reason, I, I find it such an honor and a privilege to be able to talk with you and to talk about these top, topics and, and contribute to this conversation. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.